So if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open to Daniel chapter 2? And if you don't, feel free to use one of those black ones in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you would take a few notes this morning, it might help you as you revisit this passage later this week. So Daniel chapter 2 and a note page, you'll be in good shape. Uh, I'm curious, for those of you who wear glasses or you wear contacts or you're used to, uh, do you remember the first time you got those glasses and you could see the world through your corrective lenses? Do you remember how different that was? I remember it vividly. I was a teenager and my dad drove me to the optometrist. We got my glasses and on our car ride home, I was like a cat in a room full of laser pointers. Just, I was all over like this, looking at everything. Oh, those signs have words. Oh, trees have leaves. Oh, the sky has planes. And just, I was stunned at all the things that were present that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and then that was always a fun game when I would update my prescription through the years uh, to then be reminded of just how great the gift of sight is. It's a wonderful thing. You know, what's goofy about it is that probably for me and for you, um, I didn't realize how bad my vision was until I put glasses on. I just lived with it. Uh, Just everything was blurry, and I just figured I had to squint a lot, and that's just kind of the way life was. I I didn't understand how much better it could be uh, with glasses, and I just sort of lived my life in this blurriness, not being able to see clearly. But glasses were a game changer. I could finally see clearly. Now, many people go through life with an impaired spiritual vision. And that's my focus this morning, not so much the physical vision, but spiritual vision. And the worrisome thing about having impaired spiritual vision is that so many people don't know it. They don't realize that they do not see spiritual things right. They do not understand spiritual things right. Now, if you have bad physical eyesight, there could be some consequences that come along with that. Have you considered what the consequences of bad spiritual sight might be? Well, for all of us, when we enter this world, we start at a deficit. We start at a place of spiritual impairment. And so for all of us, at some point in our lives, we understand that we are broken spiritually and in need of help. If you're a Christian, you can also have impaired spiritual vision as well. Did you know this? It might lead to living in a certain type of hypocrisy. It might lead to living in despair, being overcome by sin or life's situations. It can lead to all sorts of negative outcomes. And so I wonder if you were to evaluate your spiritual eyesight today, how are you doing? How well are you seeing spiritually the things of God, the things of Christ? Would you believe it if someone were to tell you Your spiritual vision is corrupted, but there's a solution, there's a fix for it. Would you listen? Would you receive? I hope so, because that's the direction we're going this morning. The passage we're going to study here in Daniel chapter 2 is going to show us some people who who have spiritual vision that is impaired and some people whose spiritual vision is just right, is perfect. 
And the quality of life between those two groups is vastly different. One group lives in fear and chaos. The other group lives in hope and praise. Which group would you like to be a part of? Probably you've been in chaos and fear. No one loves that. No one desires that. But to be in a place of hope and to be in a place where we've got a song of praise to sing to God our rescuer, that's a good place to be. If we study our passage right today, then we're going to walk out of here with greater spiritual clarity and days that are filled with hope and praise to God. And so I want to show you in Daniel chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, three things that God reveals to us. Now, Daniel chapter 2 is a self-contained story, meaning you can start at verse 1, go to the very end of the chapter, and you've got a whole story just in one unit. It doesn't really overlap from chapter 1. It doesn't bleed over into chapter 3. Chapter 2 stands alone as itself. Now, we're just going to study half of it this morning, and we'll finish the second half of it next week. Don't read ahead or you'll ruin the whole thing. You can read ahead. It's okay. Um, but uh, today we've just got the first half in view. If you're joining us for the first time today in this study, a quick little reminder of where we are historically. Our main characters are four Hebrew boys. They are spoils of war. They used to live in Jerusalem, and then the Babylonian army came as God's hand of judgment against his covenant-breaking people, and they wiped out Jerusalem and the country of Judah, and they took these boys and many others back to Babylon as spoils of war to live in exile. They lose every piece of their Hebrew identity, almost every piece. They're re-educated as Babylonians, and these four boys are prepared to serve the king. And that's where we find them in chapter 2. For three years, they've been trained in how to serve the king. They find favor with some of the leaders in the palace, and they've been appointed to positions of influence already early in their lives in Babylon. And that's where our story picks up in chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read. It says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give you the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you will receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time. May the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, 
or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. That's our passage this morning. The king seeks a revelation, and God has a revelation for us in this passage today. I want to show you three things God reveals to us about our spiritual lives. The first thing God reveals to us in this story is God reveals the futility of life without him. God reveals the futility of life without him. Our story opens with King Nebuchadnezzar. He is frazzled because he doesn't know if he's had a dream or a nightmare. Uh, In his day, a lot of stock, a lot of weight was put into the interpretation of dreams, as we can see from the flow of the story. And he needs an explanation. He He doesn't know what the dream means. And what if it means something good and he can prepare now for this good thing to come? What if it means something bad? And he can prepare now for that bad thing to come to help avoid disaster. So he needs help and he calls together all of his wise men, magicians, mediums, psychics, Chaldeans. These are his magic men who should be able to give him the interpretation of the dream. And uh, I love this scene in the opening verses of chapter 2. He tells the wise men, hey, I've, I've had a bad dream. I need an interpretation. And, and they say what you would expect them to say. Well, yeah, tell us about it, king. We're here to help. We, we are your magic men, your wise men. You tell us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he, just, he goes in a different direction than what anyone anticipates. He goes, no, I'm not going to tell you my dream. You're supposed to be psychic. You tell me my dream. How, how can I trust your interpretation if you don't even know what my dream is? And so here's how this game's going to be played. Tell me my dream and the interpretation, or I'm going to chop you up into little bits. I'm going to turn your house into a garbage dump. And all the wise men of Babylon will eat the same death that you do. Well, they're not ready for that. 
Because that's not how the game is played when you're a magic man for King Nebuchadnezzar or for anyone for that matter. Now, as you and I read the story, we, we, we see this turn against these magic men, and we might do a little fist bump because that's kind of exciting. But then we remember, hey, this also includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These four Hebrew boys are in the bullseye of execution as well. In this opening scene, these opening 13 verses, Nebuchadnezzar teaches us the futility of life without God. Now, to be sure, Nebuchadnezzar has a god. His god's name is Marduk. Marduk has a massive temple and a massive following. We were lightly introduced to Nebuchadnezzar's god in the opening verses of chapter 1. He takes spoils from the temple of the Lord, brings them back to Babylon, and puts them on display like trophies in his temple to his God. So Nebuchadnezzar is not an atheist. He's got a God. But his God is incapable of providing answers to his problems. His God is incapable of giving him insight into the future. And the reason for this is because his God is a figment of his imagination. His God is not the one true God. It is vital for all people that they not just have a God or a belief system, but that they know the one true God. There's different metaphors that are popular for making sense of God and various world religions today. And probably the most common one is that God is this, some, some nameless character at the top of a mountain, and we're all going up different paths up the mountain to get to him. Christians take one road. Muslims take another road. Buddhists take another road. Agnostics don't know which road to take, and atheists say there is no road. But altogether, we're headed towards some amorphous blob in the sky called, called God. Another popular metaphor would be, well, God is like a giant well, and we're all dipping our own buckets into the well to pull out truth and meaning. And all of this truth belongs to the same God, and we're headed towards the same destination. Here's the problem. The Bible never talks about God that way. The Bible never says he's one God among many gods, he's, or he's the one God in which all other paths coalesce. He is the God to the exclusion of every other imaginary God. He's not a God that goes by names like Marduk or Molech or Baal. He is the Lord, he is Yahweh, and there is no other. He does not give Nebuchadnezzar credit for doing the best he can with his false God. Nebuchadnezzar's under judgment. His wise men, his magic men, are likewise under judgment. And so Nebuchadnezzar's God teaches us how utterly futile life without God is. Recently had a conversation uh, with a dear friend about spiritual matters, and he said to me that he saw so much overlap between Christianity and Islam. I said, really, like what? And he said, in short, well, you know, they both talk about Jesus. Uh, they're both monotheistic. Uh, they both emphasize prayer and a strict moral code, things like that. And uh, I replied, well, there, there might be some general places where there are commonalities between the two, but uh, overall they are about as similar as a car and a hippopotamus. Uh, listen, the God of Islam is not a God of grace. He is not a God of love. 
He is not a self-sacrificing God. He is not a saving God. He's not the God who comes to save his people. Muslims never have assurance of their salvation, never. They live with an angry, vindictive God in the sky holding the scales of judgment over their head. Their God is not a relational God. They have no compassion, no kindness from him. It was eye-opening for my friend. And it's important for all of us to understand that life without God is futile. Everyone needs Jesus Christ. Muslims need Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar also teaches us the futility of spirituality without God. Nebuchadnezzar is a spiritual man. He believes in supernatural powers. That's why he has this weird consortium of advisors to come and help him understand his dream. What I love, though, is the way that the magic men, in the same moment, totally discredit themselves and also state profound theological truth. Look at verse 10 with me, their response to Nebuchadnezzar's request. The Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. That is true. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Also true. They're they're saying, we don't have the power to do what we say we can do. It's got to be someone other than, someone transcendent beyond all of this who has that kind of knowledge and can make it known. It's a futile spirituality on display here. We live in a land of people who do not know God, and yet they are desperate for truth. They want to know what the future holds for them. They want to make sense of life today. They want to have peace today. And in their desperation, they turn to magic men of their own. Psychics and mediums and fortune tellers and spiritual healers of all kinds are as popular as ever, and it is terribly sad. I want to make sure we're on the same page with this as a church and just as a people that every psychic, every medium, everyone who claims to speak with the dead is a scammer, a fraud, a liar, and you need to be far, far away from those people. Every one lies. Every single one of them. I don't care what kind of TV show they have, what books they publish, or what your friend says about their credibility. Every one of them is a scam artist of the worst kind because they prey on innocent people who are hurting and want help. And they bilk them out of their money and feed them lie after lie after lie. It is completely fraudulent. And I hope your life has no connection to that whatsoever. When we're hurting and grieving, we are vulnerable to these kinds of things. A few years ago, my youngest brother died in a motorcycle accident. And when he died, uh, his relationship with the rest of the family, there was a bit of friction involved there. And uh, this weighed really heavily on our mom. And a well-meaning friend said, here's the number to my psychic. She can talk to Dirk for you and get this straight. My mom didn't do it because it's a lie. But in our grief and in our hurt, we're vulnerable to things like that. Now, if you've made that visit, if you've paid that money, 
Leave that in your past and set your eyes on the God of everlasting life who has every answer and every bit of hope and courage for you. But understand how totally fraudulent and empty that type of spirituality is. A few years ago, I was driving through our city and I took this picture of a local business uh, for a psychic. And I don't know how well you can see it. I tried to doctor the image for you, but uh, on the window in front it says tarot card reading. And then around the triangle it says past, present, and it's supposed to say future. (laughs) But it has an extra R in the middle. Past, present, future. Apparently, you don't need a hooked-on phonics to read tarot cards, I guess. It's tough to tell. They also still have their Christmas lights up. This was July. I mean, who wants a hillbilly psychic? Come on. This is unconscionable. But it stands as judgment over the whole supposed field of seers and knowers. They are fraudulent scam artists. There's another category of these people, spiritual healers. Uh, I don't think they are as malevolent as psychics and mediums. They practice uh, Eastern uh, philosophies and meditations and a bunch of other things. Uh, On the South Shore in particular, uh, it goes by the name Reiki healing. I think the people who practice it genuinely want to help people, I think. And the people who receive the help genuinely want help. But the philosophy is this. All of life is energy. Even your emotions are energy. And sometimes your emotions are are negative and they create energy blocks so good energy can't flow in your life. What a Reiki healer does is through a variety of techniques, namely not touching but just waving their hands over you, uh, they realign your energies. They do away with the negative energy so that the good energy can flow in your life. It's futile. It's make-believe. It's not truth, but people are desperate for help. And apart from Jesus Christ, they will turn to any fable or myth to try and make it through their days. If you've got someone in your life that you've been praying for their salvation, you're one that you're still praying for and you're committed to share the gospel with, doesn't this give you some good news? Because it tells us that we are all spiritually minded we're all seeking spiritual answers and so many people are eating fraudulent lies and garbage and the truth of jesus christ stands out in a beautiful way in the midst of all of that i want you to see the utter failure of nebuchadnezzar and his wise men apart from god you might not know this about me i dabble in a little bit of future telling and if you were to come, that was actually my house. No, it wasn't. <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you were to come to my house, we were to sit in a dark room, I would say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you your future. Now, give me your hand. I'd take your hand, and I would study it intensely. And I would say this. Th- this hand, it tells me a lot. Uh, it, it tells me that you are valuable and precious because this hand is made in the image of God. And, and this hand was made by God for God. It's meant to give him glory. It's meant to do good works that honor him. But here's the problem. This hand, your hand, 
it has sinned. It has fallen woefully short of what God intended. And so this hand is dirty. You can't see it. I can see it because I have these special abilities. But your hand is dirty with sin, and there's no cleaning it off. You, you can do nothing about this on your own. This hand also tells me that one day your life is going to come to an end. There's a funeral in your future. I know that for a fact. And on the day that you die, because of the sin on this hand, you're going to have to endure the consequences of sins committed against a holy God. But the one who made this hand has good news for you. This is, this is, it's so good you came to me today. The good news for you is this, that the one who made this hand, he came to us in the person of Jesus, and his hands were pierced with nails, and he died the death that you deserve for your sin. He took away your punishment, and in exchange, he gives you his blessing, his eternal life, his forgiveness. And he promises that if you trust in him, he'll clean this hand and he'll hold it forever. See, without God, life is futile. But with God, life is everlasting. God reveals that to us in this story. God reveals more to us. The second thing God reveals to us in this story is the hope we find in our prayers. He reveals the hope we find in our prayers. Verse 14 is a scary verse. Daniel uh, is not present when all of this goes down with the king and the wise men. And so he finds Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Death is coming quickly. Arioch is ready to swing the sword and to hack these men limb from limb to exact the punishment decreed against them by the king. It's crisis time. The situation has escalated. Daniel and his three friends are in grave danger, and so what do they do? They get together, and they hatch an escape plan, and they put on their ninja suits and get the sharpest swords they can find, and they go to battle to chop up all these other guys and then escape into the desert to save their lives. Is that what they do? No, that's not what they do. At the height of crisis, they pray. They turn to God, to their covenant God, to their faithful God, and they pray. I'm struck by the hope that's present in this situation. Daniel and his friends have a hope in God, and that's why they pray. But Nebuchadnezzar has no hope of any answers, and the magic men certainly have no hope of getting any answers. Daniel and his friends are the only people in the whole story who have hope, and that's because they have God. So it doesn't matter how angry Nebuchadnezzar is or how sharp Arioch's sword is, Daniel belongs to the God of endless hope. A few months ago, I was visiting with Pastor Steve, uh, getting some counseling tips from him. It's not something that uh, comes natural to me. And uh, he gave me this bit of advice. He said, the first thing I do with every person after they've told me their story is I emphasize to them the hope they have in Jesus Christ. I want everyone to know they have hope. No situation is beyond the healing, restoring, helping hand of Jesus Christ. Christian hope is not a wish. Christian hope is not fake optimism. It is supreme confidence that God's promises will not fail. Our hope is not in an outcome that we dictate to God. 
Our hope is in the God who has already determined the outcome, who's already ordered our steps, who's already made the path for us. That's where our hope is located, not in our predetermined uh, uh, resolution, but into what God himself has ordained and sovereignly put in place for us. So hope doesn't dictate the outcome of the crisis, but it trusts God no matter the outcome. And what is the evidence in our story that Daniel and his friends hope in God? I would argue the evidence of their hope in God is in their praying. They pray from a place of danger to their heavenly Father to rescue them. And what's the evidence in your life that you're a person of hope? I would say that evidence should be found in your praying. Not with a fake smile or an optimistic outlook necessarily. It's prayer like a child to a father. Like a child in danger to a father who rescues. Hopeful prayer is rooted in God's character. That's what Daniel and his friends prayed. They prayed for mercy. God, be merciful to us in this. Reveal the mystery. They appeal to his character, his bend towards the broken and the hurting. Hopeful prayer is rooted in God's compassion. They go to him for answers so that they can be rescued. He's a rescuing God. He's not okay when his children are in peril. He doesn't let that pass. And anytime you come to him in prayer and say, God, look at what's happening in my life, he already knows he's already been there. He already has the answer. He knows long before you do. You don't awaken him to the danger. He is present with you in it already. He's a rescuing God. Hopeful prayer is rooted in God's strength. He's big enough to handle whatever the situation is. If it's revealing the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning, he can do that. And if it's rescuing you from your sin, he does that. He's big enough to take on all of our crises. And some of you need prayer today. Some of you need to practice hope through prayer today. Not to convince an indifferent God to act, but to remind yourself of the great God you belong to. You can go to him in confidence and in hope even in crisis. God's revealing these things to us, how futile life is without him, how important hope is in our prayer. Third and final thing God reveals to us is the praise that we sing in our trials. So Daniel and the boys pray, and God gives Daniel the answer. He has a vision at night. What that tells me is this. I think what that means is Daniel and his friends, they pray, and then Daniel went to bed. I think this vision in the night is more indicative of something that comes to him in his sleep more so than just being awake all night long praying. Could be wrong, but that's the way I, I think this reads. Doesn't, does that say anything to us about the pace of our lives and the way we handle crises? He prayed, and he went to bed. He prayed, and he went to sleep. Sometimes sleep is the surest sign of our faith in God to handle our crises. I'm, I'm the only one that needed that this morning. Thanks for indulging me. Um, but it's true. Now, look, if you and I were writing this story, we would have ordered it differently. We would have went straight from verse 19 to verse 24. We would have cut out all this praise stuff. Verse 19, the, the answer to the crisis comes. Verse 24, they begin to carry out the, the plan to avoid disaster. But the story pumps the brakes and makes us 
pause for a praise interlude. And Daniel, in this moment, in his song of praise to God, uh, he answers or he counters what the Chaldeans said previously. We read it in verse 10. In verse 11, remember they said what the king is asking is too difficult. No one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. But look at what Daniel says in verse 23. You have let us know the king's mystery. That's right, Chaldeans. There is a God who has the answers, a God who reveals these mysteries. He's Yahweh. And he's done just this to Daniel and his friends. So this story pushes us to praise. In times when human frailty is exposed and when earthly kingdoms are compromised, there's a God who hears prayer, who reveals the way, who rescues his children from danger. And can you imagine the kind of praise Daniel would have given God if he had known what you know? You see, Daniel learned the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but you know the mystery of salvation. God spoke to Daniel through a vision at night, but Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 has told you that God has spoken to us through His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. How would Daniel have praised if he had known what you know about Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection? I think Daniel's head would have exploded. He gives us these verses here of just exuberant praise to God. Oh, if he had seen Easter morning the way you've seen it. You would have never stopped praising God. I think it's important for us to remember that Daniel is an exile under threat of execution, and he praises God for his goodness and might. So this is the place where the Holy Spirit gets in our ears and he says, is Daniel the only one who owes me praise? Christian, God, has God done enough for you in sending his son and by giving you a glimpse of the future victory to come for you to praise him today from within your trials? Has he done enough for you for you to praise him even though the crisis is unresolved, even though the outcome may seem uncertain, even though you don't know what's happening later today or tomorrow, do you have enough knowledge of God's goodness and his power and his might that this day you could sing a song of praise to him? It might be hard to come up with the words yourself, but Daniel gives you the words in verse 23, I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers. And from there, we can sing what Daniel sung. Here's a quick little order to the song that Daniel sang. He praised God for his wisdom and power, for his sovereignty, and for revealing the mystery of the king's dream to him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, for your wisdom and power, your sovereignty over my life, the revelation I have through your word of Jesus Christ. We can walk into an unknown future with a God like that, without fear, without doubt, but with rock-solid confidence in the God who holds us and rescues us. So what has God shown us in this story today? What has he revealed to us? Well, a few things. He's shown us that those who live without him live futile lives. I I don't want to live that way. I hope you don't want to live that way. 
He's also shown us that those who live with God have hope and praise. Hope and praise are a very powerful duo together. Psalm chapter 42, verse 5, the psalmist asks himself this. He says, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. How's your eyesight this morning? How well do you see your God? In the midst of your crisis and in the midst of your hardship, are you seeing, are you hearing the hope we have in him? One time Jesus was explaining the meaning of a parable to his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 13, he said this to them and he says it to you. Blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. Have you seen today? Have you heard today? Jesus Christ is all our hope and praise. Let's pray together. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers. For today, you've shown us the good news of the gospel in Daniel chapter 2. So would you, in your mercy, not let any one of the souls in this room live another day without, without a new spiritual vision? Would you rescue them from living with Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual eyes? Give them your eyes and your ears. Give them a new heart as they turn to you in faith. Father, would you rescue them from the chaos and violence of unbelief and let them live with hope and praise upon giving their life to you. For my brothers and sisters who are battling through trials, Lord, let them remember your goodness of old that they may praise your faithfulness today. Let us be a people who praise you even from the pit, a people of unstoppable hope in Jesus Christ. Let that be our witness to a watching world, a hope that never ends because Christ is king forevermore. It's in his name that we pray, amen.